Amen. That is a good song. We'll, we'll get it. It's an old, it's an oldie but a goodie. It's a blast from the past. It's an old gospel song, and it and it ties in one of the reasons that it's on the on the list because it ties in to the message that we have today. Well, most of the songs do. We try to tie them into the the message. And the message is about the incarnation of Jesus Christ is what we are looking at. But more importantly, it's about having this same mind among yourselves. This is what Paul is talking about. Have this mind. We, we looked a little bit of, of uh, what Jesus Christ went through. And we, went, we looked a little bit at how he was crucified and what he had what he'd experienced. And Paul is saying, well, you've got to have the same mind. Just like, just like what Jesus Christ did. You've got to have the same kind of mind. And, and many people believe that this portion of the scriptures... Verses 5 through 8 was a song that they would sing. Uh, and let me read it very quickly and then we'll have a word of prayer and kind of go over it. And it says here in Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 8. It says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Father in heaven, this verse here, if nothing else, Paul just succinctly puts it in, in Jesus Christ's, in his mission and what he accomplished and what he did. And Lord, this is such a, a powerful portion of scripture that nowhere else in, in the New Testament are we able to see such a, a powerful picture of what Jesus Christ did for us and how he humbled himself. And we take that for granted, that he left this glorious throne, the riches that he had in heaven, the praise of the angels and the praise of the redeemed and the praise of all that, that before him, before us and, and even after are, are praising him now. And Lord, he left all of that glory to become just like us, but even more so to become the sin and even more so to be despised. And even, even lower so to become a slave and crucified and dying for each one of us. And so, Lord, help us to grasp this portion of Scripture that, that Paul so puts together in such a way that it just makes sense to us. Help us to understand that we, we could never, never empty ourselves of any kind of glory, of any kind of perfection, of any type of the attributes that he has. But we can become like him in, in humbleness, in servitude. Walk us through this passage, I pray, in Jesus' name. And everyone says, amen. This has been called a Christological gem, a theological diamond in a sense, uh, that perhaps sparkles brighter than any other scripture, as I was saying, uh, to be born, to live, and to die in human form, and to provide redemption for fallen mankind, yet as profound and as deep and in this passage theologically is, which it is, it is more practical and ethical than anything else. You see, a right doctrine always produces a right uh, actions. And when you, when you have the proper doctrine as to, as to what Jesus Christ is doing, and, and it does that, this portion of Scripture, people have taken it apart, and they've called it all kinds of things. One of the things that some scholars call this is the kenosis effect. In other words, the emptying of oneself. And, and, but, but, the, but the point of this is more than just Jesus Christ. I mean, you cannot pass the fact that he did become humble. He became man. He, be, he was born into this planet. But what he did on the cross, Paul is telling us to follow that example. He was not just describing the incarnation. He was not just describing the truths. 
but he presents to us uh, the example of humility, of how we should be as humble as Jesus Christ was at that time. You see, when Jesus Christ came onto the planet, he came not doing his own will. Rightly so, he could have done whatever he wanted to. And I think that uh, for us, we get so offended when things don't work out our way. Things don't work out the way I planned them. And without even thinking about what God wants, what he desires. But Jesus Christ kept focused like a laser on the purpose of God as to why God sent him onto this planet. As a matter of fact, the Lord's Prayer, he taught us, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done. We pray that, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. My kingdom come and my will be done. I want everything that you promised, according to some uh, pastors and leaders of churches. I want everything that you promised, all the blessings, all the good stuff. You, you know, and, and it's amazing, to be honest with you, on all this prosperity that many people preach and proclaim that you can have. Do you not realize that those are the same things? That Satan promised Jesus while he was being tempted? I'll give you everything. You can have it all. You can have the whole world and it'll be yours. And yet people flock to churches and leaders that are proclaiming the same thing, that you can have it all. And Jesus is saying, no, you need to follow my example. Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Here, Paul says, you let this mind be in you. Have this same mind among yourselves. Not the get and grab, the name it and claim it. He's saying, you, if anything else, what you need to pray for and ask for is humility. The problem with humility is well, none of us want it. As a matter of fact, uh, if you look, uh, I, I believe we have these verses here in John chapter 5, verse 30, not in your outlines, but in John chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus himself said, I can do nothing on my own. And it's not that he couldn't, but he emptied himself. He removed himself. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent him. Preach it, Pastor, Pastor, Pastor Grandpa. <laughs> because I, I don't, well, actually, he's probably saying, wait, wait a minute. You know, I, I want my stuff. You know, as, as most babies we are, we're very selfish and I'm going to get to that here in just a little bit. But we are very self-centered as children. We are self-preserving. You know, if you ever you see a child, and my grandson looks to play with the, the, the water bottles, and the first thing he does, starts to chew on it. You know, he starts to put everything in his mouth. And we got to be careful with these kids because they'll put everything in their mouth. But that's part of how we are designed to preserve ourselves, to eat, because we are hungry. And, and what Jesus Christ did, he's, the first thing he did is be, as he started his ministry, he put that aside. He says, okay, I'm going to just stop eating for 40 days to, 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 to discipline my body. This earthly body has to be disciplined. And Jesus Christ taught us how. He went into the wilderness and he disciplined his body for 40 days and didn't eat anything. And for 40 days, and after the, tempt, after the 40 days, he was tempted, hungry. And Satan promised him the whole world. And Jesus says, ah, man, but man does not live by bread alone. He lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. 
In John 12, 49, 50, he says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say, as the Father has told me. Jesus never went against God. He never went against anything that the Father had told him. He went according to what God had showed him and asked him to do. As a matter of fact, in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, we we looked at this a few weeks ago. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And you know, the problem with that is that as children, as this is what I'm getting to, as children, we are raised and we respond in such a way. Now, in my case, I'm the oldest of the family, and I'm just using this as an example. And I, and I was loved. I'm, I'm a boy, and everybody loves, loves a boy, and, and a grandson, and a first son. And, and he is raised up in such a way that, that he, he receives a lot of the praise and adoration from both parents, grandparents, and everyone else. When my mom was uh, conceived again, we, we had a, a, a baby girl. She had a baby girl. Within a few months, she died of pneumonia. She conceived again, and she died of meningitis. So you have two children in between me and my next sister that, that were born and had died. Now, can you imagine the grief of a mother that has only one son already spoiled and lost one? She just grabbed a hold of me and, and just wouldn't let me go. And she spoiled me even more so. She was again conceived. That one died. And so I was giving a lot. And I expected a lot as I grew up because I was given a lot. And I became very narcissistic in a sense. And a narcissist, and this is what uh, some people say, a narcissist is basically... There's two types. There's a grandiose narcissist. People uh, with behavior were most, most likely treated as they were superior or above others during childhood. So, you know, I was treated like a king, so I grew up thinking that I was king. I, I want everything. Give it to me. And, and what psychologists have done is they've termed this, they've given this a term, because there's another narcissist as well, which is called the vulnerable narcissist. And this narcissist, this type of a person, is the person that is treated badly. And uh, is, is abused or neglected or abandoned or whatever the case may be. So they go out and try to get everything that they can. And the bottom line, narcissism is just the word, but the Bible calls this sin. And it's the same thing that has been happening from the very beginning. When Adam and Eve sinned, they brought sin into the world. The very first sin that was committed, you can probably label it as a narcissistic sin. Where one brother was upset at the other brother because his gift was more pleasing to God. He goes, I want to be first. I want to be loved like you're being loved. And so he killed his brother. Cain killed Abel. And it's been like that from the very beginning. A narcissist, a person, a genuine narcissist, and we all have that that tendency to do that. But a genuine narcissist doesn't care what the other person feels like, as long as their needs are being met. They don't care. They can care less. They ignore people's needs around them. While everyone may show occasional narcissistic behavior, true narcissists frequently disagree and disregard others or their feelings. They also do not understand the effect that their behavior has on others. The sin is so deep and so rooted that we can care less what anybody thinks. And children that are being brought up now are being brought up with that kind of an attitude. They can care less what their actions do and how they affect people around them or in their homes. And so this is the trait that they try to mm, label it as such and, and try to medicate it. But the only medication that can get rid of this narcissistic behavior is to have a completely brand new life. This is why Jesus Christ says, you must be born again.
That's why. And Paul is focusing on these narcissists that are within the church. And he's saying, you got to be humble. And for the Greek people, they didn't have a Greek word for humility. As a matter of fact, it wasn't even seen in their writings till after the church had introduced it into their literature. And because Greeks would not be humble. They could not be humble. Their whole lifestyle was to elevate themselves and make them better than anybody else. And this is why I'm saying this sin has been around for so long. And it has hurt so many people. And narcissists like myself and others, they can be charming. They can be, you know, very pleasing. They can, they can try to, and what we try to do is try to get you to like us so that we can take advantage of you, control you. And we can somehow, you know, just keep you away from everybody else in a relationship. That's what happens. You get a narcissistic person and what they do is they isolate you. And they, they give you all this negative feedback and all these things that are coming up against you. And Jesus Christ is saying... Don't do that. You need a new nature. The old has to be gone and the new has to come. Now, I may be talking about some of you or you probably know people like this and, and they've tried to medicate. They've tried to help. They've tried to do what they can. And this is why Paul is saying you must not do anything last a couple of weeks ago. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. See, a person that is deep seated in sin. A person that has that, you know, me mentality that either was raised that way or just has that mentality, just grew that way. A person that has that. And I, I, I'll tell you, I was like that, but only by the grace of God that I was able to break that curse of sin, that curse of sin. But he says, let each of you look not onto your own interests. Because I didn't care who I burned. I didn't care what I did. I didn't care who I hurt as long as I was satisfied. But also to the interest of others. So the goal of a believer having this mind in spiritual unity in the church that by, by their, their being of the same kind of mind. And this is what Paul is talking about. We have to have the same mind amongst ourselves. In John chapter 13 verse 3 Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hand and that he had come from God, was going back to God. And in verses 4 and 5, he goes on to say in John chapter 13, he rose from supper and he laid aside his outer garment and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, then poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe with them, wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And then do you remember what he said? He said when, when he had washed their feet... In verses 12 and 17 of chapter 13 of John, when he had washed their feet and put on their outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If you then, your Lord and teacher, no, I'm sorry, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Everyone that was there, Jesus took the towel, and if you've been through our Seder, you understand that where that came from, where the bowl came from, the ceremonial washing of hands, but he washed his disciples' feet every single one, all 12, including Judas. Think about this. 
the one that was to betray him, and him knowing, he washed his feet. This was such a dramatic illustration of humility that Jesus says, you see what I have just done? And, and, and you don't get it right now, but you're going to get it here pretty soon, that God himself washed your, your sinful feet. He washed your simple and sinful feet because he wanted you to be clean. And Peter got upset. Oh, no, no, no. I'm not going to. You know, I know better. You're my teacher. You're my master. I don't want you to wash my feet. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're doing. He says, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part of me. And then Peter says, okay, well, wash my whole body then. Let's take a bath. You know, wash my hair and everything else because I know I'm filthy. Jesus says, one that is clean doesn't need to have his whole body already washed up. And basically, it was a symbolic gesture of servanthood. And in some churches, they have this ordinance that not only do they baptize and not only do they do the Lord's Supper, but they have this ceremonial washing of people's feet. And it's done to show humility. It's done to show that people, those around us, are more than ourselves describing what Jesus Christ did. The way of humility is not the way of the world. It's not. Leaders want to be honored. Leaders want to be served. People want the benefits of everyone else around them. And Jesus says, no, that's not the way it's done. That's not the way it's going to be done. You are to serve others. See, because Jesus Christ himself said, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom to many. So what Paul is talking about here in verses uh, verses 5 and on, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not, equal, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. This form of God, this, this form that he has, is, is, it comes, and you see the word here, we'll see it twice. And I, I need to kind of explain it to you right now. And I, and I read this from a, uh, a commentary called uh, uh, MacArthur, uh, MacArthur, not, MacArthur quoted Barclay. And Barclay, William Barclay, that's what I was thinking of. William Barclay, he, he, he describes this very good because in the, in the word form, there's two different Greek words for form. And I, and I don't want to get too technical with this, you know, but I just need to let you know that the only word that we have for this form is the English word form. But the word that Paul uses, first of all, is called morphe, to morph, to, you know, and, and it's essential for the form of altars. And then the other word is schema. It, uh, or scheme, where we get our word scheme, which is the outward form. In essence, morphe, for instance, the essential morphe of any human being is humanity. You're human. That's your morphe. That's your form. You're a human being. Okay. However, your schema, it changes with time. It changes as a child, a baby, a child, and a young adult, an adult, and an older adult. And that's your schema. Your form continues to change as a human. And so when Paul comes out here, he says, okay, you, that Jesus Christ, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the morphe of of God, in the form of God, he is God complete. And this is where we start to build our theology on the Trinity. He is completely God. And many people don't by that, they don't say that he's God. He was a prophet. He's a teacher. He was a person, but not God himself. It's kind of sinful, don't you think, people would say. Isn't that kind of harsh to say that, that Jesus Christ is, is you know, God, but yet he was a man? I mean, all man, man is sinful. And, and there's this, there was this religion back in the day, and it, it continues on today, which is called um, Gnosticism. And the Gnostics, what they would do is they would believe that everything that you can touch and see, including the body, was all sinful. 
it was all sinful and it was all going to die. So it didn't matter what you did to your body. It didn't matter what you, what you ate, how you treated it. They would say, eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. So let's just, you know, do, because all that mattered to these Gnostics and Gnostics or Gnosis is this thought or this thinking, this mind, uh, religion, is the, the more spiritual that you were, the closer you were to God. So they would sit around and just talk about all these spiritual revelations that they would have, this direct revelation they would have from God, and, and God would supposedly give them this, this idea, and they would do whatever they wanted with their bodies because all that's going to be burnt up anyways. Gnosticism has really transcended, I mean, into our generation where that's what's how a lot of people treat their bodies and we, we do the same thing. As long as I am smart enough, as long as I am close to God, as long as God is supposedly speaking to me, so as long as God is giving me new revelation, as long as, and, and they would treat themselves as very, very special, very lifted up. And, and if you weren't part of that group, then, you know, you were just, you, you weren't it. You just didn't have it. But Paul says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creations, Colossians 1.15, John 1, 1 and 2, you know this verse, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then in verse 14 of John 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And over and over again, we are seeing that Jesus is God. God is Jesus, and he is the second person of the Trinity. And we start to build our our doctrine of the Trinity. We start to recognize that he is God in human form. Form, morphe. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, he didn't say I was. You know, this is almost 2,000 years earlier. Jesus says before Abraham, he says, I am. I am. That's the word that God told Moses to share with the people. Because Moses says, when I, when I go and talk to the people, who do I say sent me? Well, you tell them that I am sent you. I am who I am. Not who I was, not who I'm going to be, but I am, present tense. And Jesus said the same thing. As a matter of fact, when he said, I am, ego imai, the people said, you, you can't call yourself God. Because that's basically what he was calling himself. I am ego imai. Whoa, they said. And this is why they wanted to stone him. Because they thought, because they thought he was just a man. But when Paul is talking about this, you see, he says, I want you to have the same mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God. Uh, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking on the form, now the schema, of a servant. So he's totally God, but now he's morphing or changing or schematically changing to a servant, a bondservant of all things. A bondservant. So the very first thing, what Paul is trying to tell us here in Philippians chapter 2.5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Number one, I need to step down from my exalted state. I need to step down. I need to step down thinking that I'm all it. I need to step down and think that it all revolves around me. And, I, and, and a narcissist cannot do that. A person in sin cannot do that. This is why we have to be born again. We need a new nature. We need a new nature. The, the old nature has to be gone. It has to be crucified, as Paul would say. I crucify that old nature. Get rid of it and bring on the new nature. I, you know, and I got to confess to you that that narcissistic tendency still tends to come up from time to time. 
when people cut in front of me in the line or, you know, I'm, in, I'm waiting there and, you know, people are, you, you know what's the worst thing I, that I really don't like when I'm driving is I'm driving down the freeway, right? And people just kind of pull up in front of you and slow down so they can get off on the exit when they could have just as easily done it from behind me. And, and you know, I mean, I've learned God, God has really taught me how to be, have patience and be humble about those situations because now I can honestly tell you it doesn't bother me anymore as it used to. And I'm sure it doesn't bother you guys either, right? Yeah, uh, well, 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 that's for the next message. Yeah, I mean, that's just one of the many narcissistic tendencies that we have. I don't think of that other person. You know, okay, maybe, maybe there's something wrong. Maybe there's, they're in a hurry for some reason. They, they, okay, I usually used to say, well, they just want to be first. Okay, they want to be first, they can be first. So I've learned how to just hold it back a little bit. And, and you, know what's, you know what's happened now that I hold it back a little bit? Even more so, I've, I've noticed that I, I save more gas that way. You know, I, I'm not, you know, I'm just, I'm doing my 55, 60 or whatever it is down the freeway. And, and people are going up around me and, and you know, they're, I'm way behind and they, they want to be first, they can go first. And so if anybody cuts in front of me, I'm, I'm way back here anyways. So I've learned how to save gas doing that. But you see... When we get wronged, our very first thought is, you know, I just want to retaliate. I want to get back, and I want to do something. And for our sake, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the very heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is that Jesus Christ became man. And he lowered himself. And I need to step down a little bit. I need to empty myself as well. And so in, in these next few verses that I'm going to share with you, I need to step down. There's some things that we have to talk about. Okay, well, what did Jesus Christ step down from? How did he empty himself? What did he do? Well, number one, if you look in your outlines, Jesus emptied himself of his divine glory. He temporarily emptied himself of his divine glory. He didn't empty himself totally. But he temporarily held it back when he emptied himself because we know, as well, it says here, first of all, in John chapter 17, verse 5, as he's talking to, to God the Father, as he's praying, and this is right before he gets arrested, right during the Lord's Supper, or the meal that they're having, the Passover, right before they go out to the garden and they, he gets arrested, he's praying, and this is the prayer that he prays. And in John chapter 17, if you are with me, you can go there, or verse 1. In John chapter 17, verse 1, he says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And then in the verse that you have in your outlines, he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. You see, what Jesus Christ did is he put his glory aside, his divine glory. He put it aside for just a moment. There were glimpses of it. There were glimpses of it when he was baptized and the Holy Spirit came down upon him as a dove and a voice from heaven boomed out, this is my son in who I am well pleased. There were glimpses of, of his glory at the transfiguration when Peter and John went with him to, to pray and, and Moses and Elijah were there and they were all just like, whoa, this is, this is cool, we should build three tabernacles. And Jesus says, That's, this was just so you can see the glory of God. That is upon me. And, and so throughout his, throughout his ministry, there were, there were evidences and pictures of his glory. But he temporarily emptied himself that divine glory. Because he could have just went out there with that glory. Just, just God's glory in itself would annihilate the enemy. Do you remember the temple? 
in the temple, well, before they built the temple, there was a tabernacle, and they had, they had the Ark of the Covenant, and they would carry it around because God's glory was in it, and it would radiate. And, and one time the Philistines, they captured it, they took it to, another, to their country, and in, that, in their hometown, people that just went around it started dying. They just started getting, let's get rid of this thing, you know, get rid of this thing because it's just causing this huge curse on us. And some people think it was radioactive or something because people were breaking out with boils and they were dying. And, and so they finally brought the ark back. And one of the guys that as they were walking, one of the guys that was walking alongside the ark, a Jewish person, they were celebrating and the ox stumbled and the ark almost fell over and he wanted to help God and he put his hand out. You would think he put his hand out and he touched it just so he could stop it from tumbling over and he was struck dead. That's how much glory God has. And this is just an object. This is just a box that reflected God's glory. And Jesus Christ had to put that aside. He had to because if he did not, then everywhere he went, people would just fall over, dead. Talk about being slain in the spirit. He would have just killed everybody around him. He had to put his glory aside. And, and so when Jesus spoke these words, he lifted up his eyes and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son now. Let people start to see the glory that I have, that I put aside. The second thing, Jesus temporarily emptied himself of his divine authority. Of his divine authority. Now, when we start talking about his authority and just everything that he had, he's, he says, you know what, I, I can't, I'm not going to do what I want to do. As God, he can do whatever he wants to do. But he emptied himself of that divine authority. He said in John chapter 5, verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. As a matter of fact, in John 6, 38, it says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. As we talked a little bit ago. In John 7, 28 and 29, Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. And so Jesus had to put his authority aside. He says, I'm not going to do my will. You know, and I know if I would have had the powers of Jesus, I'd have zapped everybody that just looked at me sideways, you know. And I'm glad it wasn't me. I'm glad it was him. Because I could never be and never have that same divine authority. Another thing that Jesus Christ temporarily emptied himself of was of his divine attributes. If you've taken our class, the fundamentals of the faith, the first thing that we talk about is who God is. God and his attributes. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. Uh, he, is, he, is, he can do just about anything. And, and, and God is omniscient, omnipotent, all-powerful, and uh, omnipresence. He can be anywhere at the same time. And those are just some of the big words that we use for that. But basically saying he's, he can be anywhere, he can do anything, and he knows everything. Bottom line, that's who he is. Jesus Christ temporarily emptied himself of such things. And he voluntarily did so. But every once in a while, he would, you, you would see it in the Gospels that he had this ability to know what his enemies were thinking. Like, for instance, in Matthew 9, 4. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? You know, he had that ability to know what people were thinking. And, and he had that ability to know it all the time. But he wouldn't use it. He wouldn't go use it against people. Except when it was pertinent and important, and he would do it every once in a while. As a matter of fact, for Nathaniel, uh, when he started to call his disciples together in John chapter 147, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him, and he said to him, of him, 
He says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel says, how do you know who I am? I'm just now meeting you. And he says, well, I mean, you were under the tree, you know, yesterday. I saw you. He goes, how did you, you just got here. How did you see me? And so he was able to hold back his attributes. Another, another uh, thing that Jesus temporarily emptied himself of was of his eternal riches. Jesus temporarily emptied himself of his eternal riches. A lot of people think that he emptied himself of these riches that were on the planet, which he didn't want anything on this planet. He had no horse. He had no donkey. He had no house. He had no business. He had nothing. He had no wife. He had no children. He had nothing. He didn't want anything. What he emptied himself is of the eternal riches in heaven. Now think about this. God, omnipresent, omnipotent, uh, omniscient in heaven, receiving all the praise and all the glory from all the angels and all the redeemed that are standing in the presence of God, just worshiping Jesus, just worshiping and loving him. And he leaves that behind to come to this planet, to be despised and rejected. And like a sheep led to slaughter, he is crucified and dealt with in such a way. He left all of that for this. He left everything that he was entitled to as God himself. But he says in Matthew 20, 28, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The last thing I want to share with you is Jesus temporarily emptied himself of a relationship with God. A face-to-face encounter with God himself. When Jesus Christ needed to connect and recharge with God, he had to get away, go into a solitary place and pray. And he kneeled down and he prayed, God, I just, you need to strengthen me. You need to help me. If you remember correctly, when he was going to the cross, right before he was crucified, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. We call that the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was praying. And as he prayed, he prayed over and over again, Father, if at all possible, just strengthen me. Number one, strengthen me. But then he prayed, take this cup from me. But what did he say? Not my will, but your will be done. Thine will be done, not mine. I, gotta, I came here to do what it is that you've called me to do. And God loved him, not because he was crucified, well, that too, but God loved Jesus Christ because he obeyed as a man. He obeyed. And he, he didn't have that face-to-face encounter, that relationship that you and I long for, that you and I just want to, to kind of see and be there. But we know that the only way that we're going to get there is when we go into glory. And there's this tension in our life. You know, I, I, I want to be there like Paul. But, but, you know, I think it's better if I stay. You know, but, but I know one day I've got to be there. But I think it's going to be more beneficial if I stay and, and help you and, and, and work with you and develop you as my children, my grandchildren. You know, and, and it's, it's best if we... Have that tension. Understand it, that one day we will be face to face. And many of you have have felt it and sensed that I see it in people that are bedridden. I hear it in people's voices as they are at the end of their life. A good friend of mine, a good friend of mine, uh, he was caring for his mother-in-law, him and his wife. I just found out this last week that she just kind of opened her eyes and she says, God is love. And then she just passed away. Just like that. And it's, it's amazing. It's, I'm truly amazing to see people in the, in the life in the last few minutes and their confidence and their love toward God because they know that He has rescued them and redeemed them. 
On the other hand, I've seen it also in, in people's eyes that you can see nothing but fear. And in my grandmother's case, that's the way it was. And, you know, she wouldn't accept or receive. And it is, it is just, it's horrifying. But for our sake, he made himself to be sin. He knew no sin. So that we in him might become the righteousness of God. And in Matthew 27, 46, as I said earlier, in about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. He set aside his, his authority, his glory, his authority. He set aside his attributes and his eternal riches and he set aside for temporarily that, that relationship and he felt God just so far away. He felt God so far away. My God, why have you rejected me? Why aren't you present? Why am I experiencing all of this? Because it pleased, as we read last week in Isaiah, it pleased the Father to strike him. It pleased God, not because he's a sadist, not because he's a child abuser. It pleased him because, number one, he knew that this was the only way, the only way that sin can be dealt with. Somebody has to pay. And that substitutionary atonement that Isaiah talks about, Jesus Christ fulfilled, and you and I are now partakers of that. Jesus Christ substituted himself for me, me for him. And what I deserved, he took. And as the Bible tells us, without ever raising up an opposition, because he had set aside, he emptied himself of his glory, his attributes, his authority, eternal riches, and his relationship with God, so that you and I can have access to the kingdom of God. Now, on the back of your outlines, look, look what, look what the Paul says. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The word servant is the word bondservant. In other words, somebody that is sold into slavery. And that's what Jesus Christ did. Doulas, a bondservant. A doulas didn't own anything, not even the clothes on his back. It was given to him by the owner, the master. Everything he had, including his life, belonged to his master. His children, his wife, every, if he had a wife and kids, they were all the masters. When he bought the bondservant, that bondservant was the master's, and he could do whatever he wants to that bondservant. As a matter of fact, the hierarchy was, first of all, uh, you know, there's, there's, um, there's tools. There's three different types of tools. There are the hand tools that you use, like hammers and saws and chisels and whatnot. Then there's the animals that you use to be able to plow the crops. And then there's the bondservants that you own to be able to do with whatever you want. And these three types of tools were kept in a shed. And they were kept, and they, they were taken care of. The animals were fed. You had to feed your animals. Your tools were sharpened and cleaned and made sure that they were taken care of, as well as the bond servants. And the bond servants really had it, for those that didn't have a whole lot of things, it was probably one of the best lives that they could, they could ever experience, especially if the servant, the master, was wise and, and, and he was kind. And what the master had to do is try to kind of size people up. Okay, it sounds like, it looks like you have this, this gift for planting. You have this gift with animals. And, and you have this gift of administration. Why don't you take care of my household while I go and travel and you take care of the slaves? And if you treat them bad, I'm going to come back and treat you bad. And so every one of them, they belonged to the, bonds, to the slave, to the master, but they were still his servants. None of that belonged to them. And Jesus Christ came in the form of a servant. Now look at this. He emptied himself. And he became a servant, a bondservant. And he became the one that, that as, as I said earlier, he came not to serve, but to be served. I'm sorry, not to be served, but to serve. In Luke 22, verse 27, he says, For who is the greater, the one who reclines at the table 
or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Through his provision of salvation, Jesus served others more completely as by taking on this ability to be the bond servant. And in Luke 17, 10, he says, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And what Jesus Christ was trying to get across to the disciples is, Look, you're a servant. Serve. And nobody can praise a servant. You know, you don't praise a horse for doing a good job. You don't go into your tool shed and praise your saw for cutting. Well, thank you, my saw. Oh, you've done such a great job. And in the same manner, you didn't praise a servant. You didn't expect it because you were just doing what you were told to do. You know, if we were just to understand that principle, just do what we're told to do. Be obedient to the Word of God. And when we're obedient to the Word of God, then what starts to happen is, you know, God can use us and mold us and shape us. Unfortunately for some of us, we don't want to be used that way. We want our way, our thinking. We want our kingdom to be made. Jesus was like no other human being. Of course, we know that. But yet, he had a family, he had disciples, and, and, and nobody really knew his deity. Nobody knew who he was except the angels, except God himself and Jesus Christ himself. But he, revealed no, he didn't reveal himself to anybody else except to his father, and he's the one that knew him. He was just a man. As a matter of fact, his brothers, because he had brothers and sisters, and he had a mom, Everybody, well, except for his mom, Mary. But his brothers and sisters, they didn't believe in him. He was just an ordinary guy. It was hard for them to really grasp what Jesus Christ was trying to say and do because we saw this guy grow up. He was a good kid. I mean, granted, he went to synagogue, did all the prayers. He, he wasn't a bad, he never did anything wrong. Very dependable. Mom always depended on him, but, but come on, God? <laughs> I don't know about that. Uh, you know, it, if he can walk on water, then maybe I'll start to think about it. Oh, he walked on water. Okay, well, <laughs> if he would rise from the dead, maybe we would think about it. And that's the kind of relationship he had with his own siblings. Yet, he was able to do all that was expected of him by God. So what Jesus Christ did, he emptied himself. He became a servant and he became the propitiation. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Hebrews 2, 17. It says this, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every aspect, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And, and I use that word quite often. And I, I know that sometimes I, I, I explain it, but sometimes I, I just expect that you know, people understand what I'm trying to say. But it's a biblical word. It's a word that's in the Bible. It's a word that's being used. And, and propitiation, it has two different ideas of appeasement and satisfaction, specifically towards God. Propitiation is a two-part that involves appeasing the wrath of an offended person and then being reconciled to him. So, what Jesus Christ did for us, He appeased. In other words, He satisfied. He took care of the sin problem that I had. And I was dead in my trespasses. I was an enemy of God. I was far from God. When I was yet a sinner, Jesus Christ died for me. I was away, but Jesus Christ became the propitiation. He appeased. He satisfied. He took care of it for me. 
And now, because he took care of it for me, he satisfied the penalty that I was supposed to pay. I now have a relationship with God. So the next time you hear the word propitiation, just understand that, number one, it is an appeasement. It is Jesus Christ satisfied it and built my relationship with God. I now have this relationship with him. And it's not just a theological word, but it's a word that the Bible talks about. And he became that propitiation for us. And that's the only way he can do that was becoming a man. And then last thing I want to share with you is I need to humble myself. This might take me a little bit because humility. None of us like to be humbled. None of us, as a matter of fact, when we are humbled, we get mad. You know, when people humble us for whatever reason, you know, you need to eat some humble pie. You need to, you know, whatever the case may be. It just seems to be a very negative word for us. I need to humble myself. And this is not something that can be done to me except in a negative way. I personally need to think of myself less. Jesus Christ and being found in human form, there's that word again, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Paul has set up Jesus Christ on what he's done, how he emptied himself. Now, naturally, we can't empty ourselves of the attributes that Jesus Christ had. We can't, ha- we can't empty ourselves of the glory that Jesus Christ had or the authority of the eternal riches. There's, those are things that only Jesus Christ can do. But the example is still the same Paul is trying to get across. You need to be like, like him. Yeah, you need to have that same mind and think of others more than yourself. Can you imagine what this world would be like if everybody understood this principle? Think about this. Everybody, everywhere you go. Oh, you, you know what? You want to come before me? No, 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 you go before. No, you go first. No, 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 you go first. We'd be fighting about who's going to go first. <laughs> You know, can you imagine what it would be like raising children? You know, Mom, I'm sorry. I, I, I need to do what you said. Dad, you know, I, I, I sinned. It was an error. You know what? I won't do that again. I want to think more about you. You know, at work, places that we go. Again, the narcissistic behavior, which is sin, doesn't allow it. Because it's me, myself, and I, the unholy trinity. And that's what got Satan kicked out of heaven. The pride in Isaiah. He talks about the five eyes, you know, the I will, I am, I can, I, I'm going to. I, 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 I. And that's, that's what he proclaimed to God. And, and God says, you know what? You're not going to sit on this throne. You're not going to be God. You're not going to do anything. And so therefore, boom, you're out of here. I, I, I. Adios. And send him on. If we learned the principle of humility, and beloved, I know, I, 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 believe me, take it from me, I know it is difficult to even think about being humbled or, you know, thinking of yourself less than somebody else, especially the way we grew up. You know, if you grew up in any one of the ways, the manners that I spoke about earlier, either you were spoiled or you were abandoned and beat, you know, but either which way can make you very, very narcissistic. But we have to empty ourselves. And we need to continue on and, and, and see that Jesus Christ is doing and has done everything for us to be able to do that. And, and the most dramatic and heartbreaking time of Jesus' self-denigration was during his arrest, trial, and crucifixion. I mean, here, you think that, okay, he was God, and he lowered himself to man. And then from man, he went to you know a servant, a bondservant. Now from a bondservant, now he's going to be taken away and crucified. 
If you know anything about the crucifixion, the crucifixion was only for slaves, which makes it appropriate. As I said last week, there could have been a number of ways that Jesus Christ could have died. As a matter of fact, one of the times they wanted to stone him. They took him up to a cliff, and the way they stoned people is they would take you up to a cliff, pretty high cliff, you know, high enough so that when they threw you down, you would break a bone or you would be, you know, you wouldn't be able to move. And then they would get these big rocks and they would throw them at you, and, and, and they would kill you that way. They took Jesus up to a cliff, and they were going to stone him. That's how they were going to kill him. You could have, he could have been killed that way. That was the most appropriate way to, to, to kill a false prophet or somebody that, that is blaspheming God. They could have fed him to lions. They could have sawed him in two. They could have burned him at the stake which were other forms of killing somebody, getting rid of somebody. They could have hanged him. But it was God's plan, as we saw last week in Isaiah, it was God's plan to crucify Jesus Christ. And the interesting thing about the, the piercing and, the, and the, everything that they did to Christ on the cross and how they hung him out on the tree, the crucifixion, as I mentioned, Isaiah was written 750 years before Jesus Christ. The crucifixion didn't actually come into place until about 300 years later. They weren't crucifying anybody until close to 300 years later. It was the Persians that developed it and, and the Romans who perfected it. And that's how they took care of Jesus Christ. And to the T, as if they were reading the script, which they weren't. That's just what they did. See, in, in 1 Peter chapter 5 and 6, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. The Old Testament tells us that God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And many people are walking around, and a lot of Christians, believers, they believe that you know, God is against them, is opposing them, is opposing them, and He is. He's opposing you because you're not willing to humble yourself. It seems like everything is going wrong at work because, well, you know, who does that, who does that boss think he is? You know, I'm not going to do what he says. I know that that's not right. We're not willing to humble ourselves. You know, who does, who does that person think they are? And, and God opposes us because we proclaim to be Christians. And all these things that seem to be coming up against us because God wants us to humble, humble ourselves. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. But we want to be exalted. We want to be first. We want to be right. We want to be not disrespected. So we want to have that exalted status without the humility. And we got it backwards. That's what the world taught you. But the word teaches, humble yourself. Humble yourself. God will raise you up. At the right time, he will raise you up. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. As a matter of fact, in John 15, 13, Jesus said this, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. And then again in 1 Peter 2, 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Everything that Jesus Christ did from descending from above, to becoming a man, becoming a slave, be obedient to the cross, to the death. Everything he did was so that we will be forgiven. And it's unfortunate that people take this verse out of context. By his wounds you have been healed. You see, I can be healed as if what Jesus Christ did on the cross was just so you can have better knees. 
or no back pain or no headaches or cancer-free even. You know, if God wants to heal you, He will. But it wasn't because of the cross. The cross healed your sickness of sin to prevent you from spending an eternity in hell. Not to get rid of your back pain. Not to get rid of your knees. He saved us and He healed us from the disease called sin. See, oh, the depths, Romans eleven thirty three, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how unscrutable His ways. You know, if we were just to grasp what God is saying in such a simple form, you know, have this mind of Jesus Christ in yourselves. Just, just do what Jesus Christ did. You know, I know you can't empty yourself of all His attributes and things that He has, but you can empty yourself of your pride, your arrogance, your unwillingness to submit. Humble yourself. When we have this sin within our life, this, this narcissistic sin that has just eaten us up inside, it's hard to humble ourselves. This is why you need a Savior. This is why I need a Savior. Let me ask you to stand. Jesus Christ took the steps from heaven to earth, from earth to a slave, from a slave to the cross, from the cross to the death. And he did that to satisfy, to appease, to propitiate the wrath that God had upon humanity. Lord Jesus, we thank you for that. But we can only grasp just a, a little bit of that humility within ourselves as we leave this place. Not thinking of ourselves more highly than others. If we can just grasp that idea. And it's unfortunate in today's culture, it's just the opposite. Very few and far in between people that can show us an accurate picture of humility. So Father, let us be that person, that example. And as Paul himself proclaimed in 1 Corinthians 11.1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And as Paul proclaims here that each one of us should have that same mind, he followed that to a T all the way through prison into the execution. There were times that he blew up. There were times that he was upset at John Mark and Barnabas. There's times that, that he uh, would say things and do things. But Lord, he repented and he moved forward. And I pray that you can teach us how to repent, how to be humble. This same mind that Christ had. Help us to go over this verse again, over this message, and to see and to recognize our sinfulness where we fail in this area. Thank you, Father, for your word. And I pray that as we leave this place, we never leave your presence, that we understand that you walk with us and go with us. Give us direction in all ways, Lord, in all things, we pray. In Jesus' name. And everyone says... Amen and amen. All right, if you'd like, I'm going to be up here for a moment for a word of prayer if you like. Otherwise, we'll see you next door.